Welcome to Executive Tools, The Purpose of the Organization, Chapter 1, Basics. Here we go. This cast answers these questions. Why does my organization exist? How does this affect me as an executive? What can I do to become an executive? Well, if you want answers to these questions and more, keep listening. Well, Mark, I imagine that if we want to understand our purpose as an executive, we probably should understand the context of our purpose, which is an organization, and particularly our organization. Yeah. That helped. Yeah, you'd like to think that. Uh, I uh, used to do a lot of work in Washington, still do some. And I, when people told me that they were shocked that there were uh, elected officials who really didn't know how the government worked, I said, that's one of the advantages of long climbs in large organizations is by the time you get near to the top, you understand how things work. And hopefully the senior people have told you, and this is why they work, not just how they work, but why they work. Um, and actually, I'll tell you, my, my favorite part of this cast is when I wrote chapter one in the title, because we're not even going to scratch the surface here. <laughs> we're not. There's a part in here we're going to get to where I talk about uh, the pricing mechanism. I'm just going to mention pricing mechanism. But virtually all corporate organizational life assumes a basic understanding of human beings' tendency to barter and the ability for you to have a coconut and for me to have bananas and for us to decide that your one coconut is worth a, you know, a, a bunch of, of bananas uh, and how that, can, how that essentially transformed um, humankind in many ways. So there's many more chapters of this. And... And frankly, when people are listening, I think they're going to go, oh, I want to know more about that. I want to know more about that. We'll get to all that. As I was reading the show notes and thinking about this subject, that's where my mind yeah, went. Yeah. Like, you okay. just want to keep I'm, going, right? You want I'm, to I'm going to probe him to talk more about that yeah. and then realize I just add three more hours to yeah, the yeah, cast. Three more hours. Three more hours, which we will do in future casts. Yeah. Yeah. So look, you're right. Many professionals want to be an executive. They set their sights on that. That's their career goal. Uh, and a very few even want to be CEO. For the driven individual, which I would think that our audience has a higher percentage of than normal because of their interest in learning and growth and development, if you become an executive, you're acknowledged as, as highly successful. And many professionals and managers, when you listen to the subtext and the context of their discussions, with their friends, absolutely crave, at minimum desire, in some cases crave uh, the respect and admiration that comes with being an executive, right? But unfortunately, this drive and the ambition are often flawed. They, they are based on what the individual wants. That may be my second favorite part of this whole cast. That drive might be based on what you as an individual want. But the role of an executive requires far more than just the drive to individually achieve. If you're driving to individually achieve and then you become an executive, you might discover that things are misplaced. Yeah. When we, when we get to it later, that's, that's going to be one of my favorite parts of the cast. And that distinction is an important one. Yeah. So the fact is the executive's context is always the organization. And only by understanding our context can we achieve for the benefit 
of the organization and its mission. And it's easy to be on the net, on the internet right now and putting out free career guidance and to even be popular by spewing stupidity. And they're appealing to people's desire for careers. There is another level that you can achieve in your quest, whatever your personal quest is. And that is understanding what the outcomes are of your quest. Most people probably haven't seen it. You and I grew up with it when we started learning about business. Uh, Forbes magazine, it still exists. Fortune and Forbes were the two big business magazines in the United States. Folks, you ought to know, when I, when I graduated from West Point and went to my first duty assignment there with Mark, yes, that's <laughs> the, right. the first magazine I subscribed to was not the Army Times or anything <laughs> to do with weapons or the military. The first magazine I subscribed to as a, a new a new adult with a job was Forbes magazine. Yeah, that that's funny because for whatever reason you chose Forbes, my first magazine was Fortune. Was Fortune? Yeah, yeah okay. I wanted I wanted to learn about business to understand because if if the if it didn't work out in the Army and obviously it didn't, you know, I wanted to have a five year running head start the same way you did. You wanted to learn about what potentially would be another career. Yeah. Uh, well, the reason I mentioned Forbes is because one of my my favorite thing about Forbes, I'm sure it was one of your favorites as well, was the quotations on the mm -hmm. last page. Yes. And those quotations, as I recall, were curated by Malcolm Forbes, the, the original founder, um, owner, and I, I think at one point a billionaire. And he had a bunch of quotes about different themes, about humility or grace or growth or learning or whatever. And there was always a quote at the top that was his quote. Uh, and that quote was, with all thy getting, get understanding. And that is what this cast is about. Mm. If you're going to achieve, we want you to do it ethically. To do it ethically, you've got to understand the context. If you're already an executive and you find yourself working harder and getting less from your work. It's not unusual. It's happened all the time. I've probably coached 10, 15 people with that problem in their careers when they were executives. And the issue in my experience about two thirds of the time is a lack of understanding of context. And this cast is a down payment on that context. Cool. So what's the outline? Yeah. Okay. So first I want to tell a story and I've told this story to a few people. It's it's not a detailed story, but it's a rather simple story, and it's the story of the newly named CEO. Then we'll talk about what the purpose of your organization is, and I I have to say I hope I surprise some people. I really do, Mike. I I I really think the common discussion in the world today about organizations is topsy turvy. Oh yeah, it's it's wrong. Um, and it's too bad. It's too bad for the organizations and for the people within them and for society as well. And, and, and unfortunately, uh, I, I imagine there'll be at least one person who will, will be unable to accept your definition of the purpose of the organization. That's not my, yeah, it's not my definition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not, we're not doing this based on what's in my head. And, and then the final point, we only have three bullets, is what does this mean for the executive? Now, having said that, I will tell you, our next cast is going to be the purpose of the executive. And we're going to drill down on this in annoying detail. And so we will only get into some high-level meanings for the executive. 
Good. All right. So let's share the story yeah. of the newly named CEO. And you may have shared this with me in the past, but I don't remember it. So, of course, I'm getting yeah, okay, my memories good. going. So, so. so we little drama. We little got drama, some drama so, yeah. going here. I can't wait. We got, we got that going for us, which is nice. Which is nice. <laughs> so I have told this story many times, I think, in, in small groups. I may have told it to a conference group or something like that. There was an executive years ago. This may be, let's see, it's 2021, so 20-plus years ago. I was coaching him as he moved up the ladder. Um, he was brilliant. He was effective. And he was one of those guys who says, you know, I'm pretty good at my job, but I could always use help. Uh, that's actually how I met Jamie Dimon. Uh, this story is not about Jamie Dimon. He was brilliant and effective, well-liked, and frankly, from my perspective, a great leader of people. His, his folks loved him. There were people who say, I hope your boss gets promoted to lead our team. You know, they were talking to a layer down in the organization. They're saying, I hope your boss gets promoted to lead our team. Now, while he didn't openly share his desire, because that would be stupid, his close friends, family, and, and I certainly knew that his professional goal was to become CEO. And the way we talked about it 20 years ago, he, he was basically CEO material, right? Nobody doubted his ability. And to be fair, he did, did all this stuff. He got his promotions and so on without any arrogance, without any political machinations that were so self-serving as to be sort of a dangerous indicator of something that would be a flaw when one becomes CEO. Now, let me make a couple of asides here because, Mike, one of the things I've learned is I've started laying out the Executive Tools Future casts and, and, and starting putting paragraphs and pages together. In fact, the detailed outline of one of our future Executive Tools casts is five pages long. That would have been the length, using the word processing software that we use, that would have been the length of a normal cast. The outline of that cast is five pages long. <laughs> and one of the things I've discovered is, uh, you know, the, the picture I have in my mind is the triangle, the pyramid getting narrower at the top, right? So if you take everything we've taught about managers, right, over the last 16 years, well, all that stuff is necessary for an executive, right? An executive is right. a manager as well, right? You take all that stuff, think about filling up the bottom of the pyramid with all that stuff. And then you have to do all that and then more as you go up. But as you go up, the pyramid gets more narrow. You suddenly discover that this stuff is dense. Uh, the, the executive tools guidance is dense with cross connections, with relationships, with um, hints at why one thing is the way it is and not another way. And I have to tell you, it, I get very far down in the weeds very quickly, um, which was not really a problem and is not a problem for me with manager tools. So it's interesting, you, you described, I was thinking as well when I was thinking about this cast about managers and executives and the, the typical corporate triangle, right? But as I was thinking through the show notes, I was thinking of that triangle, but it occurred to me, that's not really what it looks like. What it looks like is a triangle. And then just a little bit down from the top, there's a horizontal line. Yes, there is. Right? <laughs> and that little pyramid, gets it gets moved up. So there's a gap between everything else and that little pyramid that represents 
at the top that that represents the CEO because it's such a different animal, yeah, right? It is. Yeah. That's a good one. I like that. Um, so I want to make a couple of asides here that are important. Uh, we mentioned here about without any political machinations that were too self-serving. First, folks, never wish for your executives to not engage in politics. If you're one of those people, you're just like Mike and I when we were 22 years old. That's right. And we have a, we have a, a bit of guidance for you. Grow up, okay? When you, as a manager or professional, look up at the top of your organization, what you call politics, those executives call collaboration. There is no human organization devoid of politics. Politics are nothing more than relationship effects and decision-making. If you want a job in an organization where there are no politics, die. That's the only way you're going to get it. This may be the strongest advice you've ever given. Yeah. <laughs> die. Well, okay. I, you know, think about it. If we had our careers back to do over again, we talked about this. Remember, we talked about oh, yeah. this when we were first in Hawaii. We talked about how we're not going to play politics. And right, as exactly. it turned out, you and I were the top two ranked second and first lieutenants, I think, in, in the battalion. And we thought that that was a validation of our lack of politics. I look back and think, how much better could we have been? Yeah, yeah. Despite our unwillingness to engage in collaboration. Yeah. Right, because we had very strong ideas of what was the right way to collaboration, do things. Collaboration, right? communication, relationships, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, second. And Mike alluded to this. Folks, the role of CEO is distinctly different than all other roles in your organization. And, and we're going to have more to say about CEOs in future ET guidance. You know, there's a saying that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Well, that kind of touches on the difference between somebody reporting to the CEO and being the CEO. To say that the new CEO is now responsible for what she was responsible for before when she reported to the CEO plus all of her recent peers' responsibilities, does not capture the burden of the singular leader or the unitary executive, as they like to call it. The difference between being a CEO and her or his directs is a step change. It's an order of magnitude. For those of you who don't know, that's a factor of 10. There is no other role difference in organizations that's greater than a CEO and her directs roles. Even the promotion from individual contributor to manager, which we have long said is the toughest promotion in organizations, is far outstripped by the jump from being one of the number twos or one of the group of people that might be considered number two to the number one role in an organization. A guy I knew well, clever guy, once described CEO successions this way. To say someone's gotten promoted as CEO is stupid. It's completely misleading. That's like saying if you dated 10 people before you got married, those relationships were like promotions. And so the last one, the one you chose to get married to, was like one's latest promotion. But marriage is nothing like dating, in case you haven't figured that out yet. Losing a boyfriend and getting a new one is not like dating one person and then marrying another. So it's a it's a order of magnitude. It's a fundamentally different. It's a state change, right? And and so this is a, a little bit of background to say that when we say that someone is CEO material, it's a huge compliment. And folks, unfortunately, it's almost always a guess. CEO material, the idea of it addresses the knowable abilities of a professional, 
But the knowable is not necessarily or only part of what creates great CEOs. In, in fact, in my experience, when people talk about what makes great CEOs, CEO material, and so on, those conversations leave out some of the most critical capabilities that CEOs have to have. And we're not going to talk about those now, but I will tell you what I believe is one of the three or four most important things about a CEO, and that is decisiveness. And no one talks about this when they're a manager, a senior manager, an executive. They only talk about decisiveness when they say some person is a high D and rude and brash and so on and goes off half cocked and makes decisions just like this and doesn't consider things. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the person who knows which decisions to make and then is not afraid of making them. And there are CEOs who are geniuses and wonderful people and completely in, in, in uh, accord with every strategy and tactic of the business and great relationships with their customers who can't succeed as CEOs because they want more information. This is such a big decision. It could be a make or break decision. I can't afford to break the organization. I, I, I can't risk that failure. And so I just want to boil the ocean a little longer before I make the decision. And by now, the industry has passed them by. So taking the final step to becoming CEO is so different, a la Mike's little pyramid, the broke, the teeny little pyramid at the top that's got a separation that hovers above all others. Not that we want you to act like you're hovering. Um, that whatever you have seen in someone before is only a vague indicator of how they may perform. Okay? So hopefully that's a little sauce for the goose in this story here. So back to the story. Um, this guy, uh, he worked exceptionally hard. And to be fair, he put work first. But he was supported by a loving spouse. And he made reasonable time for his family despite long hours of work. And you should know he's still married today. He's retired, and he and his wife are justifiably proud of their children. I know his children. They're great people who love their dad and their mom and respect what their dad did. So I don't want you all thinking, oh, yeah, you know, another guy probably got divorced three times on the way to the top. Yeah, this guy wanted to be CEO, but don't paint him a villain. Don't. Okay. Now. There was no COO role in this company. Historically, the senior salesperson in the firm was the person who was most likely to become CEO. And I want you to remember that as we start talking about the role of the executive and the role of mm -hmm. uh, and the purpose of the organization. I want you to remember that the senior sales executive of the firm was most likely to become CEO. There's Not a hint there. The there's a hint there. <laughs> yeah, there's a hint there about the role of the executive and the role of purpose of organizations. But but that's not always the case. The board had a good track record of choosing CEOs. And I think in the previous 50 years or so, they'd only had eight CEOs, none of whom were removed or asked to leave early, meaning the board made a good decision. This particular executive we're talking about was not the senior sales executive. And no one assumed he would get the nod to become CEO when it was time for a transition, nor did anybody necessarily assume that the senior sales exec would get promoted to the top role. So it was a genuine horse race, if you will, although this was kind of before horse race got popularized. And so it was just a board decision. And in this particular case, our protagonist did get to be named CEO. Oh, what happened to the uh, other yeah. guy or gal, What the yeah, senior sales to, leader? To the CEO's credit, he retained the senior salesperson. 
for the full tenure. They basically retire within a couple of years of each other. Well, that's cool. That's, yeah, that, that and, says something and, good about them. <laughs> and, and the senior sales executives' uh, responsibilities were expanded to both of their satisfactions. And this guy we're talking about was privately ecstatic, and he was humbled, and he was immediately overburdened, right? I remember when I was talking to President Bush one time, and he said, you know how you know when you're president? When they make you put on the vest. <laughs> Like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, look I, at it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I thought it was now, a nice office. Yeah. <laughs> so, all that said, the crux of this story is this. When this guy became CEO, he confessed to me, and his wife knew and other friends of his knew, uh, a fear he never knew he would have to face. The drive to become CEO was a significant part of his rise. He worked for his promotions and he had a clear goal in mind, CEO. He made many decisions based on fundamentals and on how it would help his career. And here's the kicker. But once he became CEO, his primary driver was no longer available to him. There were no more promotions to achieve. There were no more relationships to leverage to further his career in an ethical way. The politics he engaged in, which often benefited him, but were, again, were still quite ethical, were no longer available to him. There were no peers to communicate, no trade-offs among peers to be made, no coalitions to form of which he would be a part. He no longer, in fact, had peers. What happens, as they say, to the greyhound dog who has been chasing a mechanical rabbit around the track and the rabbit malfunctions and she catches the rabbit? When she bites into it and discovers there's no rabbit there. By the way, I don't know the answer to that question. Now, I was there and I observed him to be lucky. I, mean, I really do mean lucky. Uh, because in the next 120 days, he put the vest on, so to speak. And he was so caught up in listening to customers and suppliers and meeting and traveling to all the parts of the international organization that he wasn't required to make one of those big left or right, top or bottom, this or that kind of significant organizational changing decisions. You know, do we invest in the iPhone? Something like that. All of his skills were called on to keep up. In fact, I mentioned this to somebody recently, Mike, about, you know, CEOs being out of the office. He said, you know, I said, yeah, I mean, they're probably in the office. You know, they're gone for a couple of weeks and then they're office for three days and then they're gone for three days and gone back for a day and then gone for a week and so on. And they say, you know, I hear that all the time. I don't, I don't understand why would a CEO be out, you know, don't they have to run the company? And I said, maybe the biggest, maybe the biggest misapprehension about organizations is the idea that CEOs run their companies. They do not. Uh, they make decisions and they steer the company, but they're not the engine room. I, I think an even better example of an executive is when presidents of the United States, and I think virtually every one of them, at least for the last 100 years or so, maybe maybe last 75 years, have all said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to run the country. No, you're not. Um, that's a really, really bad analogy. But he was busy running <laughs> to keep up with the organization. You may not know this, Mike, but there's a guy whose name you'll know. Rand V. Ariscog, 
Mm-hmm. Does that ring a bell? He was mm-hmm. the chairman and CEO of ITT, an early conglomerate. They own Sheraton Hotels, Caesars Casinos, and a whole lot of other things, even though I think they were started to provide international telephone. That's why they're International Telephone Telegraph, ITT. I think they were founded to provide telephone service to Cuba and some other Caribbean nations. Well, Rand Scott died the other day, and you may not know mm-hmm. this, but he I was didn't class- he was class 53 from West Point. And uh, he was beloved as a CEO and executive in part because he's such an ethical guy. And um, he was known for being out of the office. And that wasn't really reported on a great deal. And there were a lot of CEOs who weren't out of the office. But that was the beginning of CEOs realizing that well, they knew it before, but it was the it was started becoming obvious that if I'm going to give something away here, if all results occur outside of your organization and the CEO is interested in results, the CEO should be meeting with people outside, outside the, the organization. organization. Right, exactly. And uh, in his um, brief obituary in the Wall Street Journal the other day, it said that um, he was known for flying 250,000 miles a year because. That's what CEOs do, and that's what this particular person was doing in our story. Um, so he's keeping up, and you know, as he assumes the mantle and learns, you know, where the where all the buttons are, and uh, how he has to meet with the board, and so on. And at the same time, he's being nodded at by the same repeated questions: "What now? What drives me now? There's a there's a piece missing." Yeah. Like after landing on the moon, like what's yeah, what's next? Yeah, well, the beauty of that, Mike, is that Neil Armstrong did not set his life goal on landing on the moon. Thank God, he he <laughs> he, uh, he set a different goal, a goal of service, and therefore, landing on the moon and being the first astronaut on the moon was just service. One of one of his ways to serve. service. Yeah, yeah we should yeah. talk more about that later. Um. So he started asking himself, what's the new mountaintop to ascend? Now, I'm going to stop there. I'll tell you the rest of the story at the end of this cast. And folks, I'm really sorry, but this is going to be a multi-part cast, uh, multi-multi-part cast. Now, look, guys, this is not purely a parable because it actually happened. <laughs> uh, and it's happened a lot. I would swear to it. And we have no doubt it happens regularly for folks all over the world that suddenly are gifted with the top job. And by the way, what was it that Lincoln said? If you want to truly test someone, don't give them adversity, give them power, right? And some people become CEO and think, wow, this is great. And I have all these perks and all these luxuries and I enjoy it. I enjoy having two admins and so on. And it's the wrong conclusion to draw. Now, far more often, of course, the self-desire for promotion isn't supported by all the necessary CEO material stuff, and that person's selfish drive is thwarted and careers flatline, obviously to some disappointment and, and less than ideal responses from the principle of the story. And on the other hand, as the example here, some Sometimes that self-desire for growth and the top job is accompanied by all the tools, 
and he ascends only to have his crisis of character create great strains and sometimes failure at the top of the organization. So, the present moral of this story, folks, and listen well, is not that self-desire is inherently wrong. It isn't. And I will tell you, there is a vein, a thread in our popular culture right now that desire for more authority is inherently wrong. That is not so. That goes against the entire history of humankind to say that. It's, it's clever. It's damning. Sounds good. Make that accusation to somebody else. And it's wrong. And it's, it's actually, sorry, folks, there's an ethical and moral underpinning to being a human. It's ethically offensive to suggest it. To desire more authority is normal among virtual, virtually everyone who achieves more authority. The desire to win in a career when our careers are measured by promotions and power and the accoutrement that go with those promotions and power is a reasonable driver of success. We'll have more to say about this in a long aside in a future cast about the connection between the individual from which all go, all flows and society. And people don't understand the modern societal contract, if you will, between individuals and society. It is possible as well to be both humble and desirous of more authority. The first person who comes to mind in this regard for me, Mike, is John Hoffman, my roommate, yeah, yeah, classmate. He's a great, he's a great example. He spent his entire career going, I don't know. I didn't do very well in school. I don't, you know, I'm I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm just trying to do my best. <laughs> While he continued to outperform everybody. And when he finally left applied materials, it was because they didn't want to give him the top job, in part. And I don't know a more humble guy in the world. I also don't know a better leader in the world either. And I'm sure those things go together. And this guy obviously wanted to have the top job if he felt that in the top job, he could do it better than anybody else. That's not to say he was arrogant, because if in fact he did it, it wouldn't be arrogance, as the saying goes, as we say in Texas, it ain't bragging if you've done it. Further, folks, it's wrong to assume that the only people we should burden with more authority are the ones who don't want it deep down, or even those who say they don't want it, but actually do. They hear that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a complete, yeah, thank you. It is a surface analysis imposed on organizational analysis by social thinkers who do not understand organizational contents, context, or the requirements of being a leader. Believe us, the common wisdom is wrong as it so often is. Now, here's one of my favorite quotes or anecdotes in the story. An executive I know once hinted at the distinction really cleverly. The best example of someone becoming a truly effective executive is when they start making recommendations and plans for the organization that don't increase their own power and budget. So, all that is lead into. The moral of this parable is simple. The ethical desire for greater or the greatest organizational authority is one of service to the organization and not to oneself or one's career. By the way, the part about greatest organizational authority, don't tell that to the board of directors. They'll, have, they'll disagree with you even if you're CEO. Folks, if we want to incline toward the ethical, which we ought, we must seek more authority in the form of promotions 
to serve our organization and not ourselves. That's my favorite line in the entire cast, I yeah. think, I'll find. Because, yeah. I mean, isn't that what we all want? Like, you just think about what we want for the president of the United States. We want somebody who's completely yeah. competent, who can do the job, and is it's there to serve yeah. the country and not themselves, right? That's what we want. In our, that's yeah. what, we, what we want in all our leaders. Yeah, and, and we're, we're post-Trump, but I think many people would say that Trump liked being president. And I, I don't know if it was, it might've been Jefferson. It also, frankly, might've been LBJ, which may be the two biggest, <laughs> two differentest presidents ever in the history of humankind. I think one or both of them may have said, anybody who likes his job is crazy. Um, because it's not about you. That's right. That's it's right. It's not about you. It's not about you. Yeah. And any job that requires all of a human, every ounce of their strength and their moral fiber and their decision-making and their love for others and so on. Any job that is a, a fulcrum, a complete crucible and, and distillation of being a human teaches the first lesson of human condition. It's not about you. It's not. And too many people get on a wave and get to the top and the wave was ill-suited for the job that they are going to be into. And we hope that when that happens, you are able to navigate those waters as well as the protagonist of our story did. Right. Your career, folks, happens within the context of the organization. To see the organization as a place to climb, as a framework for your own advancement, as a ladder to riches or admiration, is to dishonor yourself and the organization you purport to serve. Which means, and I know for some of you this is probably long, and it's going to get longer in the next uh, part of this cast, to understand our purpose as executives, we must understand the purpose of our organizations. Of all the people I've had this conversation with, 5% of people get it right. And, and I'll tell you how they get it wrong. Guess what everybody says the purpose of organizations are? Profit. Make money, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. I'm telling you, if you believe that, folks, you're wrong. And again, it's morally offensive against the greatest achievement in human history, which is large organizations. So in the next part of this cast, since I think I've been talking for like 40 minutes, 40 minutes, yeah, uh, we're going to talk about the purpose of the organization. Now, I want to do us a little courtesy. I want to give the first line of the second part because I know there are some high Ds in there. It's just, okay, here they go with the story. It's a long story. And am I supposed to, you know, it's, it's Aesop's fable time. So I'm going to tease for next podcast, um, not chapter two, but part two of this cast with the purpose of the organization. Can I do that? We've never done this before. Sure. Okay, go ahead. Can I do yeah, that? Go ahead. Uh, sure. Okay. And then, then I'll tell you how, what I think. Once you said it, then I'll go like, oh, uh, okay. I'll good. tell you, I'll tell you how I think it, it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Uh, so you get one sentence, one sentence, one sentence only. That's all you get. No, I I, I get two because the second one is simply a. Wait, oh, okay, all right, all right. right. Two right. sentences. That's all you get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay, so good luck. So this is the start of the second portion of this uh, cast, which will again go in detail. Very long. It's twenty pages long. When you, a normal cast is like eight pages, this is twenty pages long. Uh, to the start of part two of this cast, which is the purpose of the organization. The purpose of all ethical 
organizations is to serve society. It's as simple as that. That's two sentences. Stop. I know, but but I told you. Yeah, I, I got, told you. I, got, I wanted the I second it. one because the second one doesn't mean anything. Other yeah, yeah. Than you're right. I get add, it. Yeah. What do you think? I think the number of listeners in the second cast is going to be much smaller because if you if you understand that and you believe that, then you can, no. you can just stop listening. Yes. Right. I mean, that's oh, the high okay. D response. Like, oh yeah, yes. I get it. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Why yeah, listen? I get it. Yeah, you know that's a good point. I think. I think you're right, Mike, and I think in after 16 years, I just learned something about all these casts I write. I am not thinking like a high D when I write casts. Oh, you're not. You're, you're not. thinking like a high C. You're like, oh, gouge I, my gouge my brain out. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm thinking like a high C. That's a really interesting. I I, I never thought of that, but I absolutely think you're right. No, um, I don't. Now, I, I now, actually don't here, believe that. But yeah, here's the other thing, though. If you think knowing that sentence is all you need to know, you really are a high D. You need right. to stay tuned next uh, two weeks from now when we do part two. I think the answer for the people that would say, well, like, just, just tell me bottom line up front and I'm done. It's like, well, yeah, but do you understand that well enough to describe no, exactly. that to your directs and to train people and to and to, to be the voice of reason and rationality in your organization? And the well, answer my, is no. Yeah. Like, yeah, you and I had a conversation yesterday. We were recording this right after one of our partner O3s, and we had a we had a long we had an hour and a half long partner O3, and we were talking about something, and we got into a discussion about derivations. And you said, and I I agreed that one of the things that made us good at electrical engineering juice at the academy was that we didn't memorize equations. We understood how the equations were derived. Do you remember what was the what was the how did we get? Oh, I was just I was describing. So those of you don't know, we have a we've recently hired a new uh, finance ah, person, yes. Elizabeth. Yeah, um, she's who a, she's is a superstar? Superstar, just been just awesome. I am so pleased. And Mark was asking me, well, when do you think these things that you've been doing for the last seven months? Uh, since our pre down in the weeds, Tracy down in the weeds, down, down in the weeds. weeds, just just crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, how long is it going to take? And and I had told him a few weeks before, yeah, it's going to take it's going to take a couple months. Which, by guys, which for me was painful because Mike and I lead this company. There's no named nor really CEO. Uh, we lead it as co-founders and partners. And when he is down in the weeds for weeks on end, as he has been since we lost our finance person, for good reason, we love her. We're happy Tracy is in a better place. But, but you know, it's just painful for me to see because there's a there's a, a missing an arm. There's the other leg. stuff. The, yeah. the, the, the yeah, discussions exactly. we have uh, are less frequent and uh, it's hard to go from 30,000 feet to down in the weeds and then magically back up to 30,000 feet. All right. Sorry. Go ahead, Mike. So he was asking me about the transition. Said, oh, no, I think I think for 80, 90 percent of it, I think in the next two weeks, like I think I'll be out of the weeds. So it's a great new story. And he yeah. said, well, why is that? And I said, well, the analogy I came up with was this this uh, reference back to our electrical engineering courses. And we had it at West Point, we had kind of two courses. Everybody had, I think every, did everybody have to take at least one juice? double E course? Yeah, yeah. And then everybody, had to, everybody had to take juice. Too. Okay, so everybody had to take it. But then there was, if you were interested in either, you were, if you're in engineering, most people are engineering, you could take the advanced course. So one was a one semester course, the other was a two semester course. And the difference right. was, if I recall, that, 
in the one semester course, you basically got, you know, there are like 50 electrical equations, real high level. And then really what you were learning to, which equation to use when. And I believe, I wasn't in the course, but I believe there was like actually a not a cheat sheet. We don't cheat it. There was, but there was, yeah. but there was a sheet that you were allowed to use that had the fifty equations, and it was great as long as the problem you're trying to solve fit into one of those fifty predefined equations. You're good to go. You just you just plug in the numbers and you get well, the answer. You say that that's because you were a star man and yeah, I was well, a star yeah, man. Yeah. If you don't know, folks, if you're a star man at the academy, you graduated in the top five percent of the class academically. Both Mike and I were star men, but. What he's saying is you're, you're good to go. Juice was the slayer of cadets academically. Cadets left the academy because they couldn't pass Juice, even though they were in the class that had the 50 equations on it. And you're not telling the whole story because we were allowed to write very small. People wrote that sheet, tiny, oh. tiny cheat sheet with more Yeah, we, more we don't stuff. have so much time here. <laughs> and, and by the way, since you brought up cheating, I will say I happen to get exposed after I graduated to some people in the dean's office. And one of the things I learned when I asked about that, I said, can I ask a stupid, I was once a cadet question. And this assistant dean said, sure, what, what is it? And he was not a grad, a West Pointer. And I said, why did we get that chi That makes no sense. We should have been had to memorize it. And like every other class I've ever been doing, you have to go in and you don't get to take notes and so on. And he said, oh, that's easy. It's, it's, um, it's because when an engineer builds a bridge, they refer to their textbooks. They know the soil composition and they look up soil composition. You can't, you cannot, there are some things you simply cannot do. Engineers in the field building stuff refer to tables and charts right. and so on. So you don't need to test somebody on their perfect knowledge of 50, 75, 100 minuscule equations that work in certain situations. That's right. You can give them the equations and it doesn't matter because some people still don't know how to apply them. And You're they right. fail, and they fail juice. It happens. Yeah, it was tough. Year. It was tough. I it, and I got A's in, in in it, and to this day, I still have nightmares about yeah. about juice. It was it was twinkle twinkle little blink E equals I R. I think. Oh my lord! See, I didn't know that. That was my problem. I didn't know that. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have them nightmares. Okay, so back to my story. The point, my analogy. The analogy was that's how I was doing finances. When Tracy transitioned to me, she said, like, we went through and I videoed, we did this on Zoom. Of course, this is all during COVID. I videoed her doing all the transactions I'm going to need to do. And it was, you go here, you go to this table, you pull this data, you put it here, you change this number, you hit submit, then you do X. It's like a long list of things to do for one of every, say, 50 situations. The problem was... That if I ran into a situation, and it happens all the time, that wasn't one of those 50 prescribed, I didn't have the net to catch it, right? I didn't I didn't have a basic understanding. I know accounting from a business perspective, but not from an accounting, accounting right. perspective. And so you I couldn't didn't, derive the formula yourself. I couldn't yourself. derive you didn't the understand formula. Where the, where right. Where it's they like, were okay, I know they're, from. Yeah. They're, there's like a general journal entry I got to do. I know enough to know that, but like, you know, which one gets debited and which ones get credited. And, you know, sometimes there are like three or three or four or six or 10 accounts that had to be debited and credited. It was just, you know, I, I had nowhere to go. And yeah. Elizabeth, she's a CPA. She's trained. She knows what she's doing. She's very, very, very bright and knows her stuff. And so I'm explaining things that I think are difficult. And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, okay, do we need to walk through it again? Nope, I got it. 
And I say, okay, you do one. And she does it like perfectly the first time. It's like, oh, <laughs> so this transition is going way, way faster because she has that background, right? She has yes. the net to catch it all. Yeah. And that's the lesson for high Ds who think that after hearing the first sentence of the part two of the cast, they can skip it. That my, my, Mike's prediction is they'll skip it because if you don't understand the derivation of your powers, you will misuse them. Yes. And by the way, you start to get to be an executive. The higher up you are on the flagpole, the more your butt is exposed. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, you're, you're, you're an island all by yourself, like the little yeah. pyramid. You're just like, you're all alone. <laughs> when you start making mistakes as an executive, you become part of the rumor mill. A couple of years ago, nobody knew who you were. Now, not only does everybody know who you are, they pay attention to you. And when you stumble, it goes on Snapchat. Oh, it's noteworthy. It's, it's worth talking oh, about. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Rough, no pressure, though. No, no pressure. No, no pressure. Yeah. And, of course, everybody listening to this cast aspires to be CEO. So, uh, yeah, have fun with all that. Yeah, have fun. <laughs> this is you know, our motivational cast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Why well, you should want to be CEO. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like Chris Farley in that SNL skit. Okay, to end up in a, living in a van down by, <laughs> down the, by river. the river. <laughs> okay, we got to wrap this up. Folks, thanks for listening to this story as, as an entree into the purpose of your organization. We'll be back in part two of chapter one with the purpose of the organization. Awesome. Looking forward to it, dude. Thanks, partner. Thanks, partner.